Welcome to Glendale Christian Church. My name is Andrew. I'm the preacher here, and I'm really excited that you've decided to worship along with us. Today, we continue our series on mountains and the divine encounters that take place there. God likes to show his majesty and his power through what is created. And mountains are one of those great created aspects of nature by which we understand God's invisible power and eternal qualities. And on top of that, God has beckoned certain people to the tops of mountains so that he can have a special encounter with them. And today, we get to talk about one of my very favorite encounters. In fact, when somebody asks me, Andrew, of every single thing in Scripture, take out the cross and the resurrection, what is the one thing you would want to be witness to, to view with your own eyes? My answer is always what happens on the top of Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel is the mountain that we will discuss today, and it is a very special mountain. It is a beautiful, lush mountain that looks over the Kishon Valley. It is in the northern half of Israel, and as you can see, it is not at all like Mount Sinai, like Mount Horeb. When you think of Mount Carmel, the first thing that comes to mind might be a sort of a desertous mountain like that would be in the Arabian um, area. But no, no, no. When you go to Israel today, it is lush and green. It was actually very surprising and startling to me when we came upon the Carmel region and went to the top of Mount Carmel. Now, it is a big mountain, and it overlooks a lot, and as you look up the gentle slope of the backside of the mountain, you can see this greenery really at play. And if you look carefully enough, right at the very top, you can see a little white church. Now, the view from the very top of that little white church on the top of the mountain overlooking the valley of Kishon looks like this. When I stood there a couple months ago, earlier this year, with many of you, when we got to go to Israel, this was one of the stops on our very first full day. And it was a highlight of my life to get to preach about Elijah on Mount Carmel, on Mount Carmel. It was spectacular. And I wanted to give some depth and some perspective. And so you can see my my self-aggrandizing selfie here looking over. And you can see that you're really high. And you can see a lot of stuff around Israel. Now, of course, Mount Carmel is very close to the Mediterranean Sea. When you think about where Mount Carmel is situated and located, if you look at the left side of the map, right by the Mediterranean Sea, you'll see a little red dot by the words Mount Carmel. That's where Mount Carmel is. It's very close to the sea. It's not too far at all. And for a little bit of perspective, if you look at the middle bottom of the map, right in the the little uh, mountainous region, there's a tiny red dot next to the words the Mount of Olives. That's Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is there. So you're in the northern half of Israel. And what God does in the northern half of Israel on Mount Carmel is single-handedly my favorite thing in Scripture. My favorite Old Testament story, and there are so many of them. And God has done so many wonderful things, even through his encounters so far. Recall that God had an encounter with Noah and his family, having brought the ark upon which he saved Noah's family and the animals safely to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And God revealed his holy nature and promised that he would never again flood the earth with water. And he sealed that covenant with a rainbow. 
Well, then we also talked about Mount Moriah, which is in modern-day Jerusalem, which is the same mountain upon which Jesus himself was crucified, and how Abraham, the father of many nations, was willing to slay his only son, according to the promise, Isaac. And before he did so, Yahweh himself said, Stop, stop! That's not for you to do. I will be the one to sacrifice my son. But this encounter helps us to see the nature of faith that Yahweh expects from his people. And it foreshadows the glorious way that Yahweh will save us. Well, then the next week, we fast forwarded over 400 years and we got to Moses and Mount Horeb, which is also known as Mount Sinai, where God revealed himself as a consuming fire. For he revealed himself in the fire that consumed but did not burn up the bush. And we have to ask ourselves, does God consume our lives? Does God so consume us that we are not burned up, but we are continually filled with the flame of Yahweh? Or are we like so many others who think Yahweh has nothing to do with them? In this encounter, Yahweh not only reveals for the very first time in Scripture to one of his creatures his personal name, he declares himself to be, I am Yahweh is my name, and from generation to generation, this is the name that shall be praised. He reveals his personal name to us so that we may encounter a personal relationship with him. And he calls and equips Moses. Well, the very next week, we talked about the law revealed on that same mountain, Mount Sinai, and how Yahweh descended in flame, in fire, for our God is a consuming fire. And he revealed the law to the people, the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law. You remember them. No other gods beside me. No idol worship. No misuse of my name, and so on and so forth. And yet, the history of Israel is the history of drift. For less than 40 days later, the people had built a golden idol, a calf, and they started to worship it. And so Moses had to remind the people in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, be careful not to forget the covenant Yahweh your God made with you. Do not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything Yahweh your God has forbidden. For Yahweh your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Do not trifle with this covenant you have made with the one true God whose name is Yahweh. In fact, just a few verses later, uh, he declares, Acknowledge and take to heart this day that Yahweh is God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other. And yet, despite acknowledging this and taking it to heart, Israel forgets. And the story of Israel in the Old Testament is a story of drift. You see, for Israel continues to forget. And they waffle back and forth. They waver back and forth. And they start to worship false gods. And this is a continual problem. Moses 
does not get to lead his people into the promised land, but instead leads them for 40 years in the wilderness. And when Joshua and Caleb are sent to spy things out, it's Joshua who leads the people into the promised land. And even there, some start to turn to false gods and drift. And after the time of the conquest, once the Holy Land is in the possession of the Israelites, the people start to turn to false gods. And the book of Judges is the continuous story of people turning away from Yahweh towards other gods, falling into all sorts of oppression, and then crying out for Yahweh to save them. And Yahweh will deliver up a human ruler, judge, and leader to guide them back to the truth. And they just keep falling back into the pattern over and over and over again. Well, then the whole nation of Israel looked around and said, we want to be like every other nation. We want a king. And Yahweh himself said, I am your king. And they said, no, no, no. We want a human king just like everyone else. And he said, fine, fine, but you're going to have the same problems as everyone else. And so it started out great with King Saul, but it went downhill pretty quickly. Well, King Saul's replacement, King David, the shepherd boy turned giant slayer, turned army uh, master strategist, started out great, but it didn't end great. His, his boy Solomon, who took over from him and who built the temple, started out great and it didn't really end great. So for 120 years, the kingdom of Israel was united under a human king in worship of the one true God, even though the drift would occur. Well, after Solomon died, then there was a big problem. The nation of Israel split. It broke in half. There was a civil war, and the northern kingdom became known as Israel, and the southern kingdom became known as Judah, and the tribes were divided. It was no longer a united kingdom. It was split, and the descendants of Solomon went on to rule these different kingdoms. And Mount Carmel, in the time of the divided kingdom, is in the northern kingdom. It's in the country of Israel, not Judah. Judah is towards the south. Israel is towards the north. And that circle is right where Mount Sinai is, right by the Mediterranean Sea. It's in the northern part of the northern kingdom known as Israel. And the kingdom is broken up. Things are not going well and people have drifted. And that's what brings us to 1 Kings 18. And in 1 Kings 18, we have a glorious, glorious manifestation of divine power. Now, there are some human players involved in 1 Kings 18. One of them is a horrible king named Ahab. Ahab is hands down the worst king Israel ever had. This guy is bad. How bad was he? He was so bad that he turned the hearts of people in Israel away from Yahweh. He was so bad that he instituted all sorts of false worship. And he wanted people to worship a false god named Baal. Now, Baal, in reality, is a demonic presence masquerading as a god. It's just a demon who pretends to be a god. There is no Baal that is a real god. He's a false god. But King Ahab of Israel, who promised to worship Yahweh, has turned his back on Yahweh and has turned towards Baal. Now, Baal was reckoned the god of the sky, the god of weather, the god of the sun, the god who could send lightning bolts and rain and control everything. And the people were told to worship Baal. Now, this is a huge departure. Doing the exact opposite of what God has revealed he once done Oh, Ahab was a horrible king, but it got even worse for him. For he married a princess from one of the lands that God told his people, do not intermarry with them. He did it anyway. Her name was Jezebel. And Jezebel was a wicked, wicked woman. 
She came in and she quickly started to rule the roost and saw that uh, Ahab wanted people to worship Baal. And that was good because she hated Yahweh because she was a godless evil woman. But she said, not just, not just Baal, not just the God of the sky and rain and weather and fire. No, let's also worship Asherah. Asherah, this fertility god, this fertility god who's sort of the complement to Baal. And together we'll worship them. And she said, you know what? You know what we got to do to make sure, hubby? Hubby King Ahab, that, that people don't worship Yahweh? Here's what we have to do. We got to rip down all their, all their altars. And then you need to go kill all the prophets of Yahweh. And Ahab says, sure, honey. And he goes out and starts slaughtering the prophets of Yahweh, killing them dead, decking his own prophets of Baal and Asherah in that which was reserved for the priests of Yahweh. It was bad, bad time for Israel. But there was one of those prophets that Ahab was ready to kill named Elijah. Now, Elijah makes his first appearance in Scripture, the chapter before in 1 Kings 17, and his quick ascendancy to most powerful prophet and most powerful leader in Israel since the time of David, since the time of Moses, is very, very quick. His ascendancy is fast, and he is a mighty man of God. He's a manly man, an outdoorsman. He will take and live off the land, and he will call people back to the true God, to Yahweh, and 1 Kings 18 is the story of Elijah versus Ahab. But it's really the story of Yahweh versus foolishness. You see, Yahweh has already been mocking and, and making a spectacle of Baal and those who would worship him. Because remember, Baal was supposed to be the god of weather. Well, in 1 Kings 17, God says through Elijah... Oh, oh, King Ahab, you are worshiping this God who's in charge of the weather? Okay, well, here's what's going to happen. At the command of Yahweh, it will not rain unless I say so. And I'm not saying so. And every day he woke up and he prayed, Yahweh, keep it dry. No dew will be on the grass. No rain will fall from the sky. And this lush, glorious land will start to look very different. And can you imagine that green scene after six months of no water? After 12 months of no water? After a year and a half of no rain, no dew? After three years of no rain? After three years of drought, Mount Carmel has dried up and looks very different than it does today. And the people of Israel are wondering, where is Baal and all the rain? I thought we were worshiping this, this newcomer, this, this guy. Why is there no rain? Baal has demonstrated his impotence, his inability, his non-existence for three years now. And 1 Kings 18.1 opens up and God tells Elijah, get ready because I'm going to send the rain. But before I send the rain, there's something you need to do. Get up and go present yourself to King Ahab. And so Elijah, being the prophet of Yahweh, does just that. He finds his buddy Obadiah, who's been rescuing and saving some of the remaining uh, prophets of Yahweh and hiding them out in caves. And he says, Obadiah, take me to King Ahab. I'm here. And Obadiah says, you got to be nuts. He will ki he'll kill me just for saying you're here. And you'll, you might run off. You're always going somewhere. He says, as surely as Yahweh lives, I will present myself to Ahab today. Go get him. And so King Ahab comes out. 
And in verse 16, he says, oh, ho, ho, ho. verse 16 and 17, the king says, hey, is that you, Elijah, you troubler of Israel? And before he can even finish, Elijah says, I have not caused trouble for Israel. You and your family have caused trouble for Israel. You have abandoned Yahweh. You have turned the hearts of people to the worship of Baal rather than the worship of the one true God, Yahweh. You have turned people from the law. You have started to slaughter the prophets of God Almighty, of Yahweh himself. You are the troubler of Israel. You and your wicked, wicked wife. And the confrontation begins. Ahab is out for murder. He's ready to assassinate and kill Elijah right there. But Elijah plays the divine card immediately that God told him to. He says, I have come here today so that you will assemble all the people of Israel here at Mount Carmel. And I want you to send word to everyone and bring all 450 prophets of Baal. And why don't you bring all 400 prophets of Asherah too who eat at Jezebel's table. And then the confrontation will happen. And Ahab started right away. He sent out royal decree to everyone in Israel. He sent it as far north to Dan. He sent it all over to all the tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel. And he sent out royal decree. Everyone is expected to make way to Mount Carmel. Come to Mount Carmel and see what will be. And he and Jezebel send word to their prophets. And all 400 prophets of Asher are smart enough to stay away. They go hide under Jezebel's table, scaredy cats though they are. But all 450 prophets of Baal say, all right, this is our chance to kill that old boy Elijah. Let's go get him. And so they find their way to Israel. They find their way to Mount Carmel. And as the people start coming in, it's not just thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands. It is over a million people that make their way to Mount Carmel, filled with people all around. Elijah and the 450 prophets of Baal stand atop next to King Ahab. And Elijah cries out to the people. And he cries out to them, calling out their inadequacy. And he shouts loud to the people, how long will you waver between two opinions? If Yahweh is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. How long will you waver between two opinions? The Hebrew word for waver here is dance, limp, hobble. It's this indecisive shuffle. Is it, is it Baal? Is it Yahweh? I mean, if we follow Yahweh, the king is going to kill us. Uh, if, if we follow uh, Baal, then that'd be great, but that's against what God wants. But, but our hearts have turned away. Ah, what, 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 what should we? And so when Elijah says, how long will you waver between two opinions? If Yahweh is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. You know what the people said? Nothing. The people stood there in silence. They could not make an opinion. The man who does not give an opinion is a lazy sluggard. The man who can not give an opinion is a fool. But the man who will not give an opinion is a coward. And Elijah said, there's no more time for cowardice. 
No more straddling the fence. No more waffling back and forth. Today is the day that we choose. Today is the day that we decide if God consumes us, our thoughts, our mind, our hearts, our obedience, or if Baal consumes us. There is no more indecision. So here's how it's going to go. Here's how it's going to go. All 450 of you prophets of Baal, go get a bull. Chop it up and slice it and get it ready for sacrifice. Put it upon the altar, but do not light it on fire yet, and I will do the same. I myself will kill a bull and carve it and put it on the altar. And then he calls out to the people and he declares the terms of the contest. You will call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of Yahweh, the God who answers by fire. He is God. This time, the people said, what you say is good. This sounds good to us, for this gives us an easy way. We know exactly who to follow now. We can follow the one who lights the sacrifice on fire. Who will accept the sacrifice? Will it be Baal or will it be Yahweh? And now our indecision will be rendered useless. We will be able to make our choice. Finally, this sounds good to us. And Elijah said, go get to it. We're on your guys' home turf. I tell you what, you guys get to go first. There's 450 of you, and I'm the only prophet of Yahweh standing here before you. So why don't you go get your bull? Why don't you go slit its throat, drain its blood, chop it up, and put it on your altar? But do not light it on fire. And when you're done, I'll do the same. And they did. They got their bull, and they slaughtered it, and they put it on the altar. And they started praying. They started prophesying. They started calling out, Baal! Oh, Baal! God of the sky, God of the weather, God of rain. Don't, don't call him that in a three-year drought. God, God who sends lightning and fire, accept our... He is fake! And no one answers. No one responds. No one cares. From the time of the morning sacrifice all the way to midday, they shout and they scream and they beseech a false God to do something. And nothing gets done. And about noontime, about midday, Elijah, he, he plays a card that a man of God not, must not play lightly. You cannot play this card until you have demonstrated your willingness to follow Yahweh to the ends, come what may. Your willingness to follow Yahweh saves Jesus, come what may. This card is only to be played selectively. And yet, Elijah gets ready to play it. He's seen these fools for hours dancing around, hobbling, asking a false god to do something. And so at midday, he plays the taunt and mockery card. <laughs> oh, nobody's answering. Surely he's a god. Maybe he's asleep. Shout louder! Get woke! And they cry out louder, Baal! Baal! Hear us! Nothing. Elijah taunts more. Oh! Maybe he's busy or on vacation. And then even in Hebrew, he says some stuff that's not even appropriate for English-speaking audiences. And he says, maybe he's indisposed upon the toilet. Maybe he can't get to you because he's busy. That's why he's busy. Shout louder. And the frenetic prophesying of these fools intensifies. And so they take out their, their swords, their spears, their blades, and they start cutting themselves. 
Maybe that will make him hear you. Cut yourself more. And they cut themselves. And blood drips from their arms and they slice their kid. No wonder they're hobbling around. It's the same word that Elijah used to describe the indecision of the Israelites. How long will you waver between two opinions? And here was this this stupid group of prophets of a false non-existent God waffling around, limping and dancing around, slashing their thighs, cutting their calves, draining their own blood in hopes that such a sacrifice would make a non-existent fake God do something. But nothing happened. This carried on. They're frenetic prophesying until the time of the evening sacrifice. And Elijah said, are you through? No one answered. No one called down with fire. No one even paid attention. And Elijah says, my turn. And it's almost time for the evening sacrifice. And so he takes a bull and he kills it and he butchers it and he lays it on the altar that he's prepared. And as he's getting the altar ready, he takes 12 stones representing the 12 stones of Israel. And he says, Yahweh has changed Isaac's, or changed Jacob's name to Israel. And these are the 12 tribes of Israel. And he's calling everyone out, even for the fact that they exist in a divided kingdom. There is supposed to be no division. There is supposed to be unity. And yet they exist in a divided kingdom. And he puts 12 stones representing the 12 tribes around this altar. The altar that had been torn down by King Ahab and the false prophets. Elijah rebuilds unto Yahweh. He lays out the wood, he lays out the stone, and he lays out the sacrifice, and he says, we're not done. Go find me four giant jars of water, which is difficult during a drought, but remember that they are very close to the Mediterranean Sea, and it would not have been too far to get water to Mount Carmel. And so, four giant water jugs. He said, dump it out. Put it right over the sacrifice, knowing full well that it is no more difficult for the omnipotent Yahweh God of the universe to light a soggy sacrifice as it is a dry one. Miracles are miracles, and Yahweh is all-powerful. Let's make it more difficult, shall we? Dump it on it. Douse it with water. And the bull becomes soggy, and the wood becomes wet, and the water starts to go into a trench that Elijah has dug around the 12 stones, and he says, do it again, and four more jars are dumped. He says, do it a third time, and they dump water all over, and he says, you saw how the people danced and frenetically prophesied and cut themselves for nothing, and he walked over, and before the altar that he had remade, he prayed to Yahweh saying, Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Yahweh, so that these people will know that you, Yahweh, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. And before He could even finish the prayer. The people could feel the change. They knew something was happening. And as Elijah finished this simple prayer with no dancing and no cutting and no fanfare and nothing crazy at all, he just prayed. And immediately, God opened the heavens and God sent the fire. He sent fire from heaven. The clouds parted 
sky darkening, and this pillar of fire descends to the top of Mount Carmel in such ferocious power that it completely consumes. Our God is a consuming fire after all. The entire sacrifice, all of the wood, all of the stones are melted. Do you know how hot a fire has to get to melt stones? It's, it's becoming fire pit season. It's cool at night now until you get your fire pit and it's pretty hot. Don't touch it. It gets to over a couple hundred degrees. It's, it's pretty warm. In order to melt rock, you've got to get to a couple thousand degrees. And this fire was so hot that it instantly consumed the sacrifice, the wood, and the stones. Because Yahweh does not even want a divided kingdom. And he's showing them that they are all in the wrong And that fire is so hot that it's described as licking up the water that was in the trench. This fire is power. This fire is God's manifestation, Yahweh's display that he is real. Oh, weather God, you can't even make it rain. Weather God, you can't send lightning down on this sacrifice. I, Yahweh, do it in a snap. And as soon as the people saw this, and it did not take long to see, as soon as the sacrifice was lifted up, the people started shouting, Yahweh, he is God! Yahweh, he is God! And the people's indecision was automatically and instantly done away with. They no longer wavered between two opinions. Baal was shown to be the fake nothing he is. And Yahweh demonstrated himself to be the true God of the universe. And so it was that the people made their choice. And Elijah, grinning ear to ear, knowing that he had just stomped all over these fools who were ready to kill him, had the crowd with him now. And he said, do not let any of these prophets go And he had them kicked down the side of the mountain to the Kishon Valley. And he said, slaughter them all. Reminiscent of the time that Moses told all of the Levites to strap the the swords to their side and cut down all who would not join Yahweh after the golden calf incident. So now the next great leader of Israel, the prophet Elijah, tells the people of Israel, to slaughter and kill dead the prophets of Baal. And you can see the men strapping swords to themselves and running through and slicing through 450 already wounded, blooding, dying fools, ripping their heads back, slicing their throats, draining their blood. And now the Kishon Valley runs wet and deep with crimson blood. The people rejoice. They're very, very excited. But Elijah walks right past old King Ahab and he says, you better get ready. You better go eat and drink because the rains are coming. And he ascends back to the top of Mount Carmel, not to gloat or celebrate, but he gets down on his knees. He puts his head between his knees and he waits for the rain that God promised way back in verse one. And he tells his servant, go look at the Mediterranean Sea and tell me what you see. And he comes back and says, I don't see anything. Seven times Elijah commands his servant to go. And only on the last time does he say, I see a tiny cloud as small as a man's hand coming out of the sea. And Elijah says, it is time. And he tells Ahab to get going. And Ahab races off. 
the power of Yahweh starts to come upon Elijah as the rain clouds start to come in, as the thunder starts to roll, and everyone knows that Yahweh is showing himself to be God, not merely because of the fire he sent, but because of the rain he is about to bring, the rain that they have been desperate for for years. It's not fire that shows his power, it's the rain that shows his power. And the power of Yahweh comes upon Elijah, and he is told to go, and he hitches up his robe, and he miraculously runs faster than Ahab's chariot. And as he goes by, he waves a little toodaloo, knowing you're not getting me. And it doesn't matter what kind of fury and wrath that wicked woman Jezebel and you cook up, you will not get me. And he hightails it out of there on God's command. Now you might think it's sad that all these prophets had to be killed, and you might think that that's a little bit harsh, but never forget what Exodus 22.20 says. Whoever sacrifices to any God other than Yahweh must be destroyed. And they are destroyed. Make sure that you don't sacrifice to any God other than Yahweh. Make sure you don't sacrifice to any idol in your life. Don't let your children become an idol. Don't let sports become an idol. Don't let politics become an idol. Have no idols in your life. Rather, be consumed by Yahweh. When your life is consumed by Yahweh, you can endure all kinds of issues. Remember what Jesus says. The man who follows his commands is like the man who builds his house on the rock. Build your life on Yahweh saves, and when the storm of life comes, it won't blow and batter you away. But the man who does not build his life upon Yahweh saves, Jesus Christ, is like the man who builds in his life in a house on the sand. And when the storm comes, it blows it away. Now, Isaiah 54.10 tells us that though the mountains be shaken and the hills removed, my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace removed, says Yahweh, who has compassion on you. Everybody gets shaken. But if you build your life on the rock of Yahweh saves, when the storm of life comes to shake, it won't blow you down. The Bible describes that as which is shaken as not that which never encounters difficulty or a storm, but that which can endure it. It describes that which is unshaken, not as that which ever deals, that never has to deal with the fire, but that can stand the forging flame of the fire. You are shaken if when the storm and the fire comes, you are blown over. But though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, my love will never be shaken. And those who follow my covenant of peace will never be removed, says Yahweh, who has compassion on you. Do you understand that his compassion is good and that his love is pure and that his covenant is available for us? Yahweh is God of the universe and Jesus means Yahweh saves. And the way that Yahweh has decided to save us is through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins and was raised again from the dead for our justification. And when we place our faith in Jesus, in Yahweh saves, then we enter the kingdom that cannot be shaken. And Hebrews 12, 28 and 9 says, since we have a kingdom and are receiving one that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for Yahweh our God is a consuming fire. When you place your faith in Jesus, you're getting a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And since you're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, give thanks to Yahweh. 
Give thanks and let us worship acceptably with reverence and awe. For Yahweh our God is a consuming fire, quoting Deuteronomy 4.24. Yes, he is a consuming fire. So let him consume you. Let him consume all of you. Do not be the lazy sluggard who doesn't make a choice. Do not be the fool who can't make a choice. And do not be the coward who refuses to make a choice. Choose this day whom you will serve. I will serve Yahweh. And I hope that we can get everyone around us to join us. So this week, here's what I'd love for you to do. Would you please read 1 Kings 17, 18, and 19? It's three chapters that starts with the emergence of Elijah as the prophet of Israel that describes in chapter 18 in great detail the story of Elijah versus the prophets of Baal. And in 19, it tells us what happens after a mountaintop experience and how God sees us through even the times we come down off the mountain. Read these three chapters, for they will bless you. God's word will not come back void. And then I want you to place upon your heart and memorize Hebrews 12, 28 and 9. Since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us give thanks and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For Yahweh, our God, is a consuming fire. Memorize these verses Put them upon your heart, put them upon your mind, and let them steer you in life so that you are not one of these who is waffling between, do I follow the sinful nature? Do I follow the world? Do I follow this idol or that idol? Or Yahweh Almighty. Let us worship him acceptably with reverence and awe, for he is a consuming fire. To that end, I want you to contemplate whether Yahweh has all of you or not. The words, you have all of me, are so important. They're words that we want to hear. They're words that Yahweh himself wants to hear. And I want you to think very carefully this week, with great introspection, whether or not Yahweh has all of you. Is he a consuming fire? Or is he just a flame that's over there that you don't want to get too close to? He will consume you, but he will not burn you up. Allow him to consume you so that you do not get burned up. And then pray. All week long, pray. Yahweh, consume my thoughts, my heart, my worship, my life. Ask him to consume you. He will. Let your heart, thoughts, worship, and life always beyond Yahweh, our God, our consuming fire. Would you stand with me as we pray this morning?